Welcome to Pleasure Principles, a sex therapy podcast designed to educate, advocate, and instigate conversations. Pleasure Principles is brought to you by Sky Hill, providing sex and relationship therapy to individuals, couples, and families in the Twin Cities. Hello, this is Jenny. And this is Calvin. And we are joined today by our good friend, Carice. Hi, Carice. Hey, guys. Now that I know how to say Carice's full name. (laughs) Which was covered covered in episode two of Pleasure (laughs) Principles. I'm going to say it again. (laughs) Carice Rota Beard. That's the one. I feel so proud. I feel like the hyphen gives me some kind of clout. It does. That's why I picked it. You know, I had a hyphen. I had a hyphen growing up, and I dropped it. Mm -hmm. I also had a dropped hyphenation. What? Did you really? Yes. This this (laughs) is podcast worthy. (laughs) (laughs) Hyphens are are the thing. We'll have to connect about that later, Kelvin. That must be why we are so Explore those reasons. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we talked about this in the last episode of Pleasure Principles. Like, the weird things that come up, (laughs) the weird, like, things that all sex therapists, or not all sex therapists, but a lot of sex therapists Mm -hmm. have shared. Mm -hmm. Like, we talked about in the last episode, which if you haven't listened to, you should. Because it rocked with Kyle. Oh, it's so good. Where we talked about how so many people who work with sexuality have a performing arts or theater background. Mm -hmm. Yes. And, and now we maybe know, I am one of them. Hyphenate. You are one of I them. I am one of them. Mm-hmm. OMG. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's that. Uh, yeah. We just let our creative spark go anywhere it wants to. I like it. Uh-huh. So the words we have gathered so far, I believe the, the one from last episode was passion. Mm, um, now we have from this episode. I guess. Passion. I guess, passion. <laughs> we all have some passion. Then hyphenation. And then we have creative spark. Yeah. I like it. We're going to, seriously, I want to rep- <laughs> write an article about what are commonalities. What are the words? Because why not? Yeah. Why not? Why not, Chris? We have had you on to talk about some of the wonderful things you know about and some of your therapist origin stories. So we're not going to do that. We're just going to say reference podcast episode number two. two. Yes. yes. Our, most, two. our most popular episode, BT Dubs. Really? <laughs> because a lot of people want to want to hear more about the shame-based society uh, yes. and unlearning some mm-hmm. of that, mm-hmm. which is kind of a theme we're going to go into today, but not in the religious sense, right. but more just unlearning things like jealousy. Yes. Talk to us about jealousy. Oh, it's one of my favorite subjects. It has a near and dear place in my heart, which is an odd relationship to have with jealousy. But this was the first... We could call it a creative relationship. A create, um, mm-hmm. Yes, a dynamic relationship. The very first time I ever taught a workshop, and it was at the Smitten Kitten, um, and it was about jealousy. And it was a couple years ago now, and... I thought, I'm like, nobody knows who I am, right? I'm just this, like, therapist doing the thing, just the white noise of therapists in the Twin Cities. And I said... There's a few of us. Yeah, I was like, I'm, I'm going to do I'm gonna do jealousy. I'm going to talk about jealousy. That's what I want to talk about. And then within structure of non-monogamy relationships, but, you know, anybody can use some information about jealousy. And we packed the joint. Like, it was... We had people standing, if you've been in the store, like behind the bookshelves, peeking through the shelves. <laughs> like, And I was thinking like, okay, like I know I have, you know, maybe one or two super fans out there, but there's no way that all these people are here because I am who I am. It was the subject. So I realized mm-hmm. at that moment how many people want to and need to talk about jealousy. Can you speak for just a moment? I'd love to 
be really clear about the wide variety of ways that non-monogamy exists. Sure. Because I think a lot of times people think, oh, it's just non-monogamy means this. Yep. But there are... Non-monogamy means poly. Yeah. Oh, man. But there's so many things that non-monogamy means. Yes. I mean, okay, put this into the SparkNotes version. Essentially, ethical non-monogamy is, you know, opting into a relationship model that is not... Monogamy, which might sound really obvious, but the the most important words in that phrase are the opt-in part of it. So mm-hmm. most people in our culture in a relationship default to a monogamous model, and that's what we're taught, and that's what we're, we learn, and that's sort of the standard for everything. And there are communities of people in various levels of being out about it or not out about it that practice ethical non-monogamy, which is, you know, the cornerstone of everything is consent. So all partners are consenting to either having from a range of more of like an open sexual relationship. So like being able to engage in sexual relationships with other people, not their primary partners, or all the way to fully fluid and open love, romantic, sexual, all of the relationship types with other people. So yeah, I work from, especially in my practice, I work with people like very obviously in a hierarchical model. This is my primary partner. We might share a house, kids, whatever, but also we open up to, you know, have sexual experiences with others. This is helpful in Mixed identity couples, people who have different sexual identities want to serve those parts of them, all of that. But I also have, you know, I have packed a lot of people into my small office of like five different people all in relationship with each other, all living in the same house, maybe like co-raising a few kids. And, you know, so there's there's kind of the spectrum. The most important things are that people are opting into this and that everybody is consenting and on board because non-ethical non-monogamy is cheating. Mm-hmm. Right, non-ethical non-monogamy is, you know, something that those who practice ethical non-monogamy really don't want to have associated with them. Yeah, you bring up another point where there's a lot of I hear like myths like well, if you're not if you're in a non-monogamous relationship then you can't like there isn't cheating. There isn't betrayal because you just get to do whatever you want. Right. And that's I often am not at all true. So not true. (laughs) Not at all true. So can you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah. I mean, you kind of did, but or anyone chime in here. But I think that there are a lot of misconceptions. Tons. Oh my goodness. Tons because there's. I I mean, there's. It's similar to you know the comprehensive sex ed discussion where it's like things tend to go awry because people don't have the right education. Like most of the time people come into therapy with some pretty big issues that are happening. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I'm always wishing we could have gone back and talked about like from the get go when they first wanted to open or were first identifying their relationship model. You know, one of the most important things to remember is that no relationship model absolves all issues forever and ever. Amen. Right. Like monogamy has its own struggles that is a price of admission for that model. Non-monogamy has its own struggles that is a price of admission. And Mm -hmm. certainly a lot of what I do and work with people is because agreements have been broken within non-monogamy. So agreements are sort of a better word for rules that is more collaborative and kind of guides the principles of how you're doing your relationship. But yeah, absolutely. People can lie. They can, you know, break agreements. They can like engage in some pretty unethical things within the bounds of ethical non-monogamy. And it isn't just like a free for all. You get to kind of do whatever you want. In fact, we have more discussions 
more articulate and specific discussions about what boundaries are and are not crossed because right. there's potentially a more capacity for hurt. Absolutely. Yeah, so much of that is resonating with the work that I do with folks, right? This, And I think that, and you speak up if this isn't been the case for you all, but I recently have had a huge bump up in people who are mm -hmm. coming in for non-monogamy reasons. And my hypothesis is that culturally we're talking about non-monogamy a little bit more, right? Yeah. Like it's coming mm -hmm. up in pop culture to certain extents and it's kind of raising to the awareness of people that like, hey, this exists. Mm -hmm. And then people kind of might default to that to say like, oh, this resonates with me. This is who I am. And, you know, either do it or don't. Right. And then they come into me, to my office, and they're like, hey, this isn't working. And I'll start, I'll, you know, ask about like boundaries. And they're like, what? Yes. What, yeah, are, what things are those? That you think, and right. it's not to, you know, it's not their fault. Like they've no. never been taught. Oh, it you're supposed been, to do it this certain way. To it hasn't sure. been modeled well, right. right? In pop culture anyway. Right. No, it definitely has not been modeled well in pop culture. Even when you say people tend to default to. Yeah. Right? Like as opposed to, you know, default to monogamy. Or even talking about what's the difference between like, I feel like there was a really bad sex ed video that I showed in class once to try and demonstrate, look, this is not Why a not great <laughs> option. But people talking about like serial monogamy versus mm -hmm. the idea of like pure monogamy where it's like right. you are only with one person for your whole life. That's real monogamy is what this person was saying. Otherwise yeah. you were a serial monogamy and saying it like almost like, you yeah. know, shame, shame on you or something. Right. So there's so much stuff and we aren't taught options. No. And not only are we not taught, like it's, it's fairly culturally – not okay still. Sure, I yeah. mean, yeah. people still, you know, people practicing ethical non-monogamy, like this still comes up in like nasty divorce cases or, mm -hmm. you know, like they could still, you know, I have clients that struggle with just like who's going to pick up their kids from school because if one of the non-biological or legal parent partners wants to pick up a kid from school, there's a bunch of hoops to jump through, sure. you know, who can be like make emergency decisions. So, you know, and not only that, but, and this is part of what ties into all the other stuff I work with too, just the moral shame narrative that exists because of it often forces people into the closet about it. And then that, as we know, when people are in the closet, there can be really good reasons why, but they're not getting access to mm -hmm. the information, education, services that they need to have the kind of healthy relationships that they want to have. Yeah. So, yeah, I forgot what the question was, but that was a that, great tangent. No, I love it. <laughs> We don't always have to answer the question. <laughs> That's fine. I could talk for hours <laughs> just, about this. We just like learned to. Well, part of what I was saying, what are some of the the myths, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and what the misunderstandings yeah. that we have in our culture about non-monogamy. And part of what you're highlighting, and I really can't agree more people say, oh, well, let's just try this. And I tend to say, no, 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 no. Like, let's let's not. And usually I am someone who's like, yeah, let's try it. You know, let's try it. Right. Nope. Now I'm going to say not yet. We have to do, there's a lot of work to do. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of conversations. And when people who don't know a lot about non-monogamy kind of do this thing where they're saying, oh, well, that's what this is, like kind of seeming as if they know a lot about it. I'll say, actually, People who are in relationships that, like, there, there's so much more 
excellent communication that has to take place or like mm-hmm. so many more conversations, hard conversations that you have yeah. to have that if you're in a non-monogamous relationship as opposed to, or pardon me, an ethical non-monogamous right. relationship, as opposed to if you're just in the monogamous relationship, because right. you know, they're just givens. You don't, where people think they're givens. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'd be great if everybody had those kind of conversations. It would it's, be. It's a super awesome extra bonus to have those conversations in a opted in monogamous structure. It's mandatory to have those conversations in a non-monogamous. And this isn't because the lifestyle or the model is somehow more harmful. It's just math. There's more people involved, which means more potential for Mm -hmm. hurt or confusion or whatever. You have to kind of caretake more emotional selves than you would with just two people. More variables. More variables. Yeah. That was my favorite thing. I one time had coffee. This is my name drop. Had coffee with Dan Savage Mm -hmm. once. And we Mm -hmm. talked about ethical non-monogamy. And, you know, he kept saying, like, when it comes to, like, being more careful about STIs and sexual health and also, like, emotional health and whatever, he kept saying, like, it's not the model that's bad. It's just math. There's more people involved, more variables. So that's totally his thing. It's not. I'm going to give him credit for that. It's Mm -hmm. just math line. But... It's no judgment on it. It's just, it is what it is. Right. Yeah. That leads actually really well into this conversation about jealousy. Yeah. And shame and jealousy and how you work with that and how that probably is a big part of some of the hard conversations. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's also one of the biggest myths is that if you practice ethical non-monogamy, you must like reach this sort of poly nirvana of never feeling jealousy ever or it will never work which (laughs) doesn't really happen god I watched like person after person sit on my couch and be like I'm so bad at this because I feel jealous and I'm like no you're a human Mm -hmm. in relationships and that's why you feel jealous so I mean one of the biggest goals of talking about jealousy and kind of attaching that to my name in terms of what I specialize in was because I generally hate when people are feel overpowered or afraid of their own emotions. When like we have lost, you know, the sort of mission control of our emotions and they take over us and they start to make decisions for us. And so more than just saying, here's how you cross every T and dot every I so that you make sure you never feel jealous, I wanted to say, let's welcome in the jealousy, see what it says, mm-hmm. learn how to work with it learn how to turn it into something that prompts us to be better versus something that just can and does multiple times totally flood somebody and cause them to make decisions that they wouldn't probably otherwise make if they were in rational mind. Mm -hmm. So specifically when it came to non-monogamy dynamics, there was, I would, I would start to see in my clients this justification for certain rules or agreements out of a place of jealousy. So I remember, you know, situations where people were saying I don't want you to ever go like a this was happened to be like a hierarchical primary couple saying to their partner I don't want you to ever go to like these places or these places or these places with your other partners because that's our special thing and that makes me feel jealous and we ended up I actually made them like draw a map and by the way like they totally gave me license to use this as an example because they understood later that this was This was a lot, but they gave, I like had them draw a map of the city of like where they could actually go 
with their partners. And it ended up being these very small pockets that were just unreasonable. Mm-hmm. Like, can't drive through this neighborhood. You know, so mm-hmm. we had to back up and be like, how much power does this emotion have? How much is it serving this relationship right now? And can we find a different way to have it be there without it being in charge so much? Would it be reasonable to say a lot of times we think, we might think that jealousy is protecting us. Mm -hmm. And part of what you end up working with clients and working with them through is the idea that it's actually getting in your way. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a protection. And this is why... This is why I love it. I love emotions like jealousy and anger that are fueled by these passions of some sense of injustice. Because I think that's great. We need more of that. We need more people to be aware of injustices. We just need to do it right. And we need to figure out how that Mm -hmm. works for them. I used to be super into yoga. And we studied a lot about attachment versus non-attachment and kind of the Buddhist philosophies around that. And... I started to realize that jealousy was actually more of a reaction to the fear of losing someone, which might seem obvious, but jealousy in its most intense form lies to you and says, if you somehow secure your territory or, you know, anxiously hold on to these dynamics, don't let them go to this restaurant, don't let them have this kind of sex, don't let them do this, don't let them do that, Mm -hmm. that you're somehow protecting losing something because it's really painful to think about losing a partner. Of course it is. Mm-hmm. And this is usually, the when I talk about this, the part of the workshop where I say, like, there's no Hallmark card for this, but the reality is that we lose everything that we love. Love and loss go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And that's a really hard pill to swallow, but it also helps us understand that the usefulness or lack of usefulness in really overly attaching to our partners, thinking if we just, like, protect all these things, we won't lose them, rather than engaging in a really probably a long process of therapeutically teaching yourself how to be non-attached to the end result so that you can really attend to the needs in the moment and the joy in the moment and not have it be robbed by jealousy. You are reminding me, I'm sorry, keep on going, Calvin, my gosh, but you're reminding me of Brene Brown and her power of vulnerability talks about how we often allow, I want to say, fear to rob us from joy. Mm-hmm. And so when you said that, it was like, yep, right? We, we, so we're, we have this wonderful picture of a happy family going down the road. Everybody's, everybody's happy. There's, you know, nice music. Great things have just happened. And then what's the next scene? And like everybody says, and they get in a huge car crash or something like that, as opposed to just continuing to enjoy the moment, right? right? Like it could, what happens next? It could be something awesome. It doesn't have to be, but we go to that thinking that we're kind of saving ourselves from something, yeah. right? Like, but we get in the way of really experiencing the joy of being in the moment right. and appreciating what's happening. And so I love that because I think you're spot on with that. It just, we think we're doing one thing. We think we're protecting ourselves from maybe a feeling yeah. and we're doing or like having to experience or tolerate the discomfort of that feeling, but we're doing kind of like the exact opposite. Yeah. While y'all were talking, I was pulling up a tweet that I wanted to read off because I, I think this tweet is awesome and I agree with it. And this isn't a monogamy or non-monogamy thing, but I think this kind of goes towards that jealousy angle and our culture and how our culture handles jealousy mm-hmm. and how wacky that is. Like, mm-hmm. right? Like we've modeled jealousy as like healthy for relationships. Right. Right. Like there's right. so many teen movies where jealousy is a central part of 
yeah. the narrative. Or like the scorned lover. I mean, not just teen movies. Like Ugh. scorned lovers can do whatever they want in the name of jealousy and it's justified. Yeah, it's romantic. Yeah. yeah. Right? And that, like, no, that's not romantic. Yeah. Right. That is problematic. Mm-hmm. Do not live your life in context to media because media is not real life. Right. right? And we'll get into that in a future episode. But this tweet is from Domestic Goddess, and it says, Your significant other is allowed to have meaningful relationships with other people. Your significant other is allowed to get things from those relationships they don't get from you. Demanding you to be the only source of pleasure and support in their life is possessive and toxic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even in For monogamy. Any model. Right. Even in monogamy. Like, it doesn't matter. I think that is so... I'm so stoked that this person wrote this. I I couldn't agree more, right? It doesn't matter what the relationship model is. It doesn't matter what, like, it doesn't even have to be a romantic relationship, whatever, right? Right, People are allowed to have other relationships. Right. Right. In fact, we might encourage it. Yeah. Because we cannot, I think it's really difficult to get all sorts of things met from just one person. Oh, my goodness. That's asking so much from that one person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And mm. we've seen them. We've all seen them in our office. Like, you can tell when that relationship is about to implode. And there's so many roles and responsibilities being forced into one person's mm-hmm. relationship with you that it's mm-hmm. bad. It turns out bad. Oh, that's really amazing. Like, green light people, people you can say anything to. You can be any, you know, they're safe people for you. To, then there's your yellow, then there's your red light people. You're like, mm-hmm. eh. nope. And we had to fi- have to figure out. In all of our relationships, who are what are what are those green versus yellow versus red? And I think you can. I've actually used that with some couples where it's saying, okay, so what are the green light relationships like? How do you know what are the conversations you've had versus when you get into more like a yellow right? And where how do you know when you're about like and what do you do when you're in a yellow right. spot? Right? Like what are the conversations you need to have when right. you're starting to move from the green to the yellow? And then what? What are the ways that you know you're at a red? Yeah. Right? And that can be for anyone. And sometimes it's just easier to, I don't know, because those gradations seem really mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, and that that brings up two of, not all of my clients are practicing ethical non-monogamy. Many of them are opting into monogamy or don't. I mean, I get a lot of purity culture clients that are coming out of that. So a lot of them don't even know that this world exists. They were never taught this. But I find myself using these concepts no matter who the clients are. I'm not going to sit down and be like, you know, I think you should definitely open up your sex life. That would really solve all your problems. (laughs) Doctors note, even though you're not a doctor. I've had people say, like, I don't understand how you can recommend this to people. I don't recommend it as much as I would recommend, like, hey, you should have a baby and that would really fix all of the issues. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. So... (laughs) Well, yeah. I can't even talk. I mean, <laughs> babies are great. Also, awesome. difficult. We love them. But I find myself using this model of non attachment, having a village model mm-hmm. of getting your needs met, even if it's not sexual or romantic that you're farming right. out to other people. But what else can you farm out to other people so that we're not holding tightly this narrative and identity of this one person being everything, which is a breeding ground for jealousy. That's where, because the second that they start to pull away, which they do because Mm -hmm. relationships are fluid and grow in and out, then you start to panic. There goes your entire village in one person is like floating away from you. And of course you're going to panic. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm just like clapping internally. I'm like, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> so here's a segue I wanted to bring up. So last week, I was actually interviewed for a research project around non-monogamy competency in therapy mm-hmm. and kind of where I learned this competency, and I, which I'm like, I don't, I'm pretty new to the to the therapy game, but like have worked with this quite a bit in other contexts and very much in therapy. And one of the themes that came up for me, and I work in this cool sex positive bubble, you know, Sky Hill and Cedar Hill Therapy are both very much like, yeah, if this is the way you live, that's cool. Let's work on that. Right. That's not the case for mm-hmm. everybody. And I know that a lot of folks, well, let me clarify, a lot of folks who maybe are non-monogamous or exploring that, that there's a lot of fears that come yeah. up with going to a therapist to talk about these mm-hmm. things. And this actually came up in a podcast I was listening to yesterday where the person actually had like two recommendations for finding a therapist that could work with this subject. And then was actually really wow, like shamey about like how therapists aren't good at this. And I was mm-hmm. like, we are, we are, we <laughs> exist. <laughs> Just find, find us. us. Find us. And so I guess I wanted to open up the discussion before we end about what are some like pro tips for finding a cool therapist that can work with like non-monogamy and stuff. Yeah. Because you know, of course, if you're in the Twin Cities and you're listening to this podcast, then you've found us. us. And, you know, like <laughs> and but, all who we associate with. Yeah, yeah, but like you know, if you're elsewhere in the country, or if you're like, mm-hmm. ah, I know too many people at these clinics, and I want to look elsewhere. Like, mm-hmm. right. what are some questions or concepts that are important when finding these therapists? I love that question, and like the therapist that I am, it makes me want to ask another question and point it in a different way quickly. Just calling in professionals and providers that it's a little backwards. It's the way things are. It's a little backwards that we're having to give clientele tips on how to find therapists that will be ethical with them because ultimately it's about ethics. Like our job is we can exist as a person in the room, certainly, but our job is not to come in with our own set of judgments or criticisms or whatever it might be. We are to totally. be there and to like reflect what the client is needing. So providers, mm-hmm. <laughs> if you find yourself with these things, that's okay. With these judgments, that's okay. Maybe just take a beat to check them and figure out like if somebody did sit in front of you and you had genuine curiosity, that's different than... I have had clients come in with three or four different attempts at different therapists who have just flat out said, I refuse to work with this. This can never be good for a relationship. Just passing in an entirely unjust judgment on the Don't lifestyle. mind me over here just barfing in my mouth. Oh my mouth. God. And then I, yeah. And then of course I have like a very like, you know, tapered reaction of just like, why is this happening? Yeah. So providers educate yourselves, you know, it's fine. Like there's lots of therapists who have And I've done this with other cultural things that I don't understand where I flat out say, I have no experience with this. I really care about you and want this relationship to work. So can you, would you be okay pointing me in the direction of sources I can go to? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not on them to necessarily do the education, but just kind of highlight if I'm getting it right or if there's something I've missed. So that being said, if you are a client and you're finding yourself, most of us because we know what it's like out there, we'll be very clear in our Psychology Today profiles and, you know, different profiles that we have that we work with and validate and celebrate these different Mm -hmm. kinds of relationship models and identities. 
that becomes a little bit more difficult if you're in like a rural area and you don't have access to, you know, a giant city full of lots of people. And in that case, I would maybe just, you know, in an initial email or interview or whatever, say something like, this is something that we are ethically practicing. Do you have any experience with that? And if you don't have any experience with it, like, are you willing and able to just hear our story and, you know, work with this? So, yeah, I mean, if it's not glaringly obvious, feel free to ask questions. My stuff is glaringly obvious, and I still have people ask questions, and I love it. Yep. Because a good fit is what's going to make or break your experience. For sure. Yeah. Right? I just, I really want to echo, put it in your initial email, put it in your initial voicemail, you know, ask on the phone. Mm -hmm. Like, really put it out there, Mm -hmm. right? Because... You know, speaking from like our clinic, that's going to get you matched up with a clinician that best fits what you need, right? Mm-hmm. It, the more information we have, the more we can pass that on. And in like smaller clinic or, you know, rural settings where maybe there's only one or two therapists, like in a huge, you know, expanse of space, that really just naming that from the get go, mm-hmm. I mean, the therapist can't go out and you know, tell people your business anyway, no. you know, if they do, then you can sue them. Um, <laughs> <It's> real bad. <laughs> yeah. But that naming that and saying, do you have the cultural competency to work with this? Right. right. Do you have space to do this in a non-shameful way? Right. Or sh- in a way that won't shame me and my partners. I think right. that is so incredibly important. And know that there are resources like, you know, some therapists mm-hmm. do do like teletherapy. Yep. If, mm-hmm. you know, some therapists will m- maybe do travel a little bit more or whatever, right? Yep. So that There's these options. things exist. Yep. There are options. Well, in the, the therapists that don't have as much, like I have noticed, um, they're not always egregiously judgmental mm-hmm. towards the lifestyle, but sometimes there is like what I call the poly funnel, which like all of the problems get sort of lumped into. It's because you're poly. It's because you're non-monogamous, which I don't think we ever said, but poly is a short for polyamorous and it's another way to say non-monogamous. That gets convoluted. We can have a whole nother discussion about that. But yeah, like a lot of times people will say, well, these problems are obviously arising because you're having sex with other people or, and sometimes that's true, but a lot of the times it's it's just, you know, your plain old communication issues or mm-hmm. something else going on that Standard a really trained eye will be <laughs> yeah. like, is this, because I've even done this before and I'm like, am I just defaulting to this is the problem and this is the source of it? Or do I need to take a step back and say like, let's pretend that didn't exist. Would this problem still be there? And mm-hmm. how do I, then how do we know where to go in therapy? So it's worth it to have it's worth it to have a person with experience if you can't find that, you know, maybe just be aware that some of what they might be doing and not to be judgmental is just kind of seeing that as this mm-hmm. is the obvious source of all of the things, mm-hmm. which is not always correct. Yeah, I agree with what both of you are yeah. saying. And it is important to, I like the idea of an email or a phone call or even a five-minute phone call if you can yeah. as you're interviewing providers so that you can say, you know, you're not putting the time and the money and the effort into going and having a whole session when yeah. it may not be something that they feel okay with. So if yeah. you can get someone on the phone even for five minutes to ask a couple questions, I think that's going to be really helpful and, and a wonderful question. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Carice, we got to say goodbye. But guess what? But I, I live right next door to you. You do. And <laughs> Carice has agreed to step in my place at our next episode. So you will get to hear more from Carice. Mm-hmm. 
I don't even know what number we're on, but I do know it's our next episode. Yeah. On episode next. <laughs> we'll say episode uh-huh. next. Awesome. So thank you, Chris, for being here and talking about non-monogamy. I have a feeling we'll have you back for that topic in particular. Yep. If you have questions, listeners, or if you have topics you want us to cover or people you want us to bring back, please write us at info at skyhilltherapy.com. That's info at skyhilltherapy.com. And Pleasure Principles, must not forget, is brought to us by Sky Hill, providing sex and relationship therapy to individuals, couples, and families in the Twin Cities. So bye for now. See ya.